Well, our children can slide back to Transformation Station. And as they're sliding back, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles. And if you don't have one with you, we've got some Bibles underneath the chairs there. And we're going to be in Psalm 67 this morning. Psalm 67. In the Bibles that we provide, that's page 481. Page 481. Psalm 67. Page 481. As our children are making their way to their classrooms, let me just say it's good to be back and proclaiming the Word of God to you. As many of you know, um, I haven't preached in probably a little over four months. And I just want to say thank you. Uh, Many of you know I've been working on finishing up my dissertation. And uh, thank you to Tanner and the leadership at Redemption Hill really freeing me up um, to finish that. And by God's grace, I was able to turn that in, and, and I'm almost through that process. But let me just say, say thank you. I know that it was the prayers of many of, of God's saints praying and laboring for me um, that God heard and answered and was gracious to provide through that season for me and my family. So let me just say thank you. I know many of you labored in prayer for me, and, and it was not in vain. And so just I want you to know I'm, I'm very grateful for that and for a church and a community that you all care. Many of you have asked and, and, and how things are going. So thank you, and it's, it is good to be back. If you've been with Redemption Hill for any short period of time, It doesn't take long for you to see that mission is integral to how we go about doing church. I mean, Tanner's already highlighted our mission statement over here. In red there, you see mission, one of our three core values, mission. In our corporate prayer, every Sunday, maybe this is your first Sunday, but every Sunday, we are praying missions. In North America, greater Boston, and to the ends of the earth. And in our community groups. Who's in a community group? You got many? Man, it's great to see all those hands. That's awesome. In our community groups. Would you pray? All of our community groups have missionaries that they have adopted. I've got a letter back here that I'm going to hand to a community group leader today from a missionary. And they're going to go back and, and update their group on ways that they can pray for missionaries. Many of you have movement cards. Who has a movement card? Some of you don't know what those are. Some of you have them. Movement cards. And you'll see mission is in red. This is a tool that we equip our people with. And on the back, there are six spaces. And we say, we want you to own your relational network and pray that God would use you for those people that need Jesus and a healthy church. Mission, personally, movement cards. Often on Sundays, We'll throw an invite card and our worship guide. Why? We want you to take that and find somebody this week and invite them. Mission. This past month or so, we've had an emphasis in our community groups, equipping and resourcing you to live on mission for God. Maybe you have a story track. Did anybody pick up a story track over the past month or so? Some of you guys got a story track. Maybe a two ways to live booklet. These are all resources we have for free on a resource table. Mission, mission, mission. And for our members and those who have been to some of our members' meetings, we do have one tonight, by the way. You can make a little note there. Um, you look at our budget, and our budget screams mission. We're, we're just a church plan, but you can go and look in our budget and say, we have 4% designated to North American missions, 4% to international missions, and that's on top of many of our partnerships that we already have. And so it's prioritized in our budget. I mean, we're doing a whole missions series, right? Sent the mission of God and the church. It could be tempting for you to think that mission is the primary goal and task of our church. My purpose in this sermon is to argue that that is not the case. Missions is not the ultimate and primary 
goal and task of our church, and neither should it be of your life. For what is, let's go to Psalm 67. And here's what I really pray today. I pray that Psalm 67 for you would be one of the texts in the Bible that just grip your soul. You have a conversation with a believer and say, man, what are some of the most important, man, influential passages in your life? I pray today that this would be one of those for you. Not my sermon, the text, Psalm 67. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to read Psalm 67. Heavenly Father, I pray and I beg that you would open our eyes to see clearly your word. Grant us faith to believe it. God, we pray that today as we hear your word, that you would correct wrong thinking and and bad theology about you, and you would help us to think rightly about you, missions, and this world. God, by your spirit, would you move in our church for your name's sake, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 67 Beginning in verse one, we see that it says, to the choir master with string instruments, a psalm, a song. Verse one, may God be gracious to us and bless us may his, and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. I want to highlight a few initial observations before leading to two main truths that I really want us to walk away with today. First of all, looking in verse 1. Just looking at the overall structure and picture of this psalm, we see in verse one, may God be gracious to us and bless us. You hear that word bless? Now look to verse six. Look forward to verse six. The earth shall yield its increase and our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. This psalm, you see at the beginning and the end, is this phrase blessing, this idea that God would bless us. Now, I know as we read scripture, sometimes it's tempting to read and think us and to just put your name there. God bless John Chasteen. But before we do that, I want you to, to think rightly as we read through scripture, who is the us here? This is a prayer of an Israelite. This, this is a prayer of Israel saying, God Bless us. It's a prayer of blessing upon Israel, and it's it's reminiscent of a, of the blessing, the priestly blessing found in number six. I've got it here for us. Look at this, number six. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give." you peace. There, there's a background here that God had said, and, and now you've got this psalmist saying, God, may you be gracious and bless us. But it's also reminiscent of God's blessing and covenant that he made with Abraham. Look at this. Genesis 12. We just spent through a whole series in the Pentateuch. Genesis 12 says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. As we read through this, I want you to be asking this question because we're going to take it back to Psalm 67. Why was God blessing Abraham? I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, 
And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And get this. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you hear that in Psalm 67? Go back to Psalm 67 here with me. Psalm 67 Verse one, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that we see purpose here, that your way may be known on earth, your, salv- your saving power, or the word is your salvation, your salvation among all nations. God, bless us so that your salvation may be known in all the earth. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now as we read this psalm, we also read it as those under the new covenant Christ, as Christians. And so it would be right for us not not just to look back at the blessing in Abraham and this priestly blessing, but to look forward. And I want to take you there real quick. We're going to jump forward and then we're going to come back and draw some implications from this text. So jumping forward, this prayer was also looking to a future day, a future day when the Gentiles would receive God's light. And that day has arrived in the coming of Christ. Look at this. We just, we just went through Galatians. So I'm just going to, this will be familiar with you, but this is what we studied in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Do you see that? In Christ, pointing to him becoming a curse, his death, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross because we are under a curse. We could not perfectly keep the law. And so that it is him in him that this blessing to Abraham comes to me and you. We see also in Galatians 3, I've got another one here for you, earlier in in 3 verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Just pause here for a second. What What did Genesis 12, 3 say? In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here we see here in the New Testament how Paul, he says, in you shall all the nations. So when we read, in you all the families of the earth, he's speaking of the world, the nations, all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. When we go to Psalm 67 and we hear, may God be gracious to us and bless us. You need to get this. Charles Spurgeon says of this psalm, till he be merciful to pardon our sin through Christ, he cannot bless or look kindly on us sinners. God cannot so much as bear any goodwill to us till Christ makes peace for us. So listen to me. You're here today and you see Psalm 67 1 and you want to pray, God be gracious to me and bless me. I just want you to want you to get this. The blessing of God must first be embraced in the grace of God seen in Christ. Until you embrace Christ and find your sin dealt with on the cross, you cannot experience and embrace and receive the blessing of God. So just ask you a question. Have you turned to Christ and received the blessing that is available to those who are of faith? If not, believe today. Turn to Jesus right now and believe. Confess your sin and ask for forgiveness and believe in Jesus. This blessing is available to all. But I want to ask a further question, which we've already alluded to. You see, this decisive fulfillment of Psalm 67 was found in Christ. But let me just ask you, 
Have all the nations received the blessing of Christ today? The answer is no. Still today, we wait for a future ultimate fulfillment where the whole earth is filled with worshipers of God. Let me just share some stats with you. When we think of nations, you hear us sometimes talk of people groups or families of the earth. Here's what, when, when we look at the earth, the statistics show that there are 9,736 people groups. And so when we talk about people groups, this is a people that have some affinity and, 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 and once you as we think of people groups, it, it, once this affinity, as you continue to push out and reach barriers, then you're reaching into another people group. And so we talk, some, a people group is something that it's affinity. Maybe it's a language. Obviously, it's going to be a language. But it, when, when there becomes a barrier to that people group, then you've got another people group. There are over 9,000 of those in the whole world. How many of those have been reached with the gospel? What would you say? Tell you this, 42% of the world's population is unreached. 42%. I think the world population right now is around 7.2 billion. 42% of those, these people groups, it's actually 4,066. There are 4,066 unreached people groups in the world today. So when we pray, God, may, may you bless us and be gracious to us so that all the ends of the earth may fill him, fear him, that all the peoples praise you. That has not been fulfilled yet. So why did God bless Abraham? Why does the psalmist pray for blessing? Why does God bless you with salvation today? We are blessed in order that we may be a blessing to the nation. And you see this in Psalm 67. Just go back there with me. You see all the references to the nations here? You see it in verse 2. That your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Look at verse 3. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 3 is actually repeated in verse 5. You see that? It's the very same verse. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Look at verse four. Let the nations be glad. I mean, it's just repeatedly. You go verse by verse. All the people of the earth, the nations, all the peoples of the earth. And then verse seven. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. What does God want from the nations? Or may, maybe I'll just ask another question that's gonna kind of propel us into the rest of our time today. What is the ultimate goal of missions? I want to give you two truths. It's going to take up the rest of our time. And the first one is this. Worship is the goal of missions. Worship is the goal of missions. And I want to share a quote with you. It's, a, it's from a book we've got on our resource table a book called Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. It is, you go take a, a class in seminary on missions and that's gonna be most likely in every seminary a book that they're gonna require you to read. And he, this is the main thesis of his book. He says this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church, worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Just let that sink in. Missions exist because worship doesn't. What does he mean by that? Or just, let's just conceptual. I want to take you on a tour here for a second. Let's go to Genesis 1 and 2. The very beginning. You don't have to turn in your Bible and just listen to me. Genesis 1 and 2. The creation of the whole earth. Uh, the creation of everything. God creates Adam and Eve. He creates man. And what does he do? What does he tell them? Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now let me just propose a question. 
What happens if Genesis 3 never occurs? Everybody knows what happens in Genesis 3, right? In Genesis 3, Eve is tempted by Satan. She eats from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She disobeys God. She sins and death enters. What happens in this world if Genesis 3 doesn't occur? What does this earth look like? The earth is filled with worshipers. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Adam and Eve are reproducing themselves and they are reproducing true worshipers of God. Fills the entire earth. That's the beginning. So when John Piper says missions exist because worship doesn't, did missions exist in the Garden of Eden? No. In Genesis 1 and 2, there's no mission. What is there? There's worship. There's no need for mission because worship exists. Now let's take another tour. We're going to go to the end. Revelation. I've got a verse here for us on the screen. Revelation 5. Let's look at this. Revelation 5. You've got the Apostle John. He's looking into the future. And, and just, just listen here. He says, and they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You look to the end in Revelation, and there is worship. There is coming a time soon when missions will no longer exist, and it will just be worship. When Jesus returns and we enter into the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no mission, but there will be worship. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Now, before we move on, I want to clarify a few terms for us. What do I mean and what do we mean by worship? When I say worship is the goal of missions, I know already some of you are thinking, hands raised, mouth wide open, singing. Now that can be worship, but that's not primarily what I'm thinking when I think of worship because all of those things can be done in vain. You can be here today. You can have your, your hands raised loud. You can have your, mo your mouth wide open, singing praise to God and do it all in vain. So what do I mean by worship? I'll give you a simple definition. Worship is the response of one's entire being to the glory, honor, and worth of the triune God. Worship is the response of one's entire being to the glory, honor, and worth of the triune God. I'll, I'll try to explain it from Psalm 67. Look at your Bibles here. Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. To worship God is that he would be known. And this knowledge is here, it's not just an intellectual knowledge, it's an experiential knowledge. So to worship God is to know God. Look at verse 3, let all the peoples praise you. It's that God may be praised. 
Look at verse four. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy that God may be delighted in, that he may be enjoyed. And then look at verse seven. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So when we say that, that, that God desires that we should worship him, it's that he may be known, that he may be praised, that he may be delighted, enjoyed, cherished, that he may be feared. Worship is the response of one's entire being to everything that God is. We see in the New Testament, Jesus carefully removes worship from time and place. You remember the woman at the well? She said, we worship on this mountain, you worship on that. He says, no, the worshipers worship me in spirit and in truth. And Jesus goes radically inward. You, you can, may, may reflect on his interaction with the Pharisees. What does he say of the Pharisees? They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. And he goes radically inward saying, true worship is a worship that overflows from the heart. So when I say worship is a response of one's entire being, maybe we could say it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is everything you have in response to everything God is. Now don't miss that word response. It is a response, and you've got to get this. You're here today, and you're kind of learning this whole Christianity thing. Know this. The Christian religion is not your attempt to get to God. It is your response to what God has done. The only way that you can rightly worship God is because he has made that worship possible through Christ. So I may repeat Romans 12:1 to you. At the end of all of Romans, Laying out and talking of the work of Christ, Paul says, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you therefore, brothers, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now let me rewind that. How does he, you, you probably heard the part, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, but how did he start that? He begins, I urge you therefore, brothers, in view of the mercies of God. Paul says, look at everything that God has done for you in Christ. And we could go back all the way through Romans, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We deserve the wrath of God. We were storing up wrath. And Jesus became the propitiation for the sins of the world. It's just saying, look at Christ, and in view of that, give everything. Offer your body. He doesn't just say, offer your Sunday morning. You guys hear that? I love this quote by Tozer. Tozer says this. He says, worship one day a week, and everybody will think you're normal. Worship seven days a week, and everybody will think you're strange. What does your worship look like? Worship is not a day. Worship is a response of your entire being to the honor, worth, and value, the glory of the triune God. But I also want to share something else with you. This is for your greatest good. When I'm pleading before you and I'm saying that worship is the goal of missions, let all the peoples praise you, let all the peoples fear him. I want you to know this, to respond with your entire being will lead to your greatest joy. So I can say with the psalmist in Psalm 1611, who says, in your way is the path of life. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is Fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or I can say with the psalmist in Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blesses the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord. Do you hear that? 
We saw in Psalm 67, let all the ends of the earth fear him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. To respond with your entire being is for your greatest good. You will lack nothing. So Psalm 67, 4 says what? Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The worship of God is not something that is hindering your joy. The worship of God is to pursue your joy in the one being that can actually provide that joy. Unending, everlasting. So that's what I mean by worship. Let's clarify one other term. What do I mean by missions? You may hear us use these terms, missions and missional, and it's important that we get these. We often talk at Redemption Hill about living a missional life. What do we mean by that? Usually it's in conversation with your relational network, right? So just think about that. We tell you that you have neighbors, every single one of you. You've got neighbors, you've got friends, you've got coworkers, and you have family. And when we talk about living a missional lifestyle, we're talking about 24-7. You live every day of your life on mission through looking through the, the lens of the mission of God, knowing that he has providentially placed these people in your life. We challenge you to own those people and to intentionally pray for them and engage them for the sake of the gospel. That's what it means to live a missional lifestyle. But we can't just talk about missional. When I talk about missions, and when we're talking about this, this series, the mission of God and the mission of the church, we're, we're talking about the task of the church sent into the world to make disciples of all nations. When we talk about missional, we're usually just talking about your normal everyday life to live that way. But the church must also strategize how to reach these 4,000 plus unreached people groups for the sake of the gospel, and they will not be reached if we're just busy with living a missional lifestyle here in Greater Boston. You guys get that? So we can't confuse the two. There is missions, and there is missional. The point of this first point, worship is the goal of missions is that missions is the means to the ultimate goal of global worship. I've got one more quote from Piper as he continues to clarify what he means, and he says this, worship is the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. So when Tanner and Scott go to India in unreached people groups, they're going with the framework that missions is not number one. Missions is number two. Number one is worship. And so they're going and they're, they're calling the Indians there to find enjoyment in the, in the white hot enjoyment of God's glory. Come and worship God. Missions is a summoning to the nations. Come and worship God. That's why missions is the means to that glory. But why is God worthy to be worshipped? Let me highlight a few things from Psalm 67. Go back to your text there. We see, first of all, in verse 1, that God, that God is worthy to be worshipped. And a message that we can proclaim to the nations is this. God is gracious. Isn't that good news to the nations? I mean, we go to the nations and we plead with them, come worship God, because God is a gracious God. He extravagantly gives to those who don't deserve it. None of us stand before God and deserve anything. This is good news for all. God is a gracious God. But what else do we see here? 
He is a God who provides salvation, that his salvation, his saving power would be known among all the nations. God is a God who truly saves. You see, the nations are worshiping gods, but those gods have no power to save, but we know the one true God who can actually save. So we invite them, worship the God who can save. What else do we see? We see here in verse four, God is also a God who provides true joy and delight. Let the nations be glad. And so we invite them, worship a God who in his right hand are pleasures forevermore, who can say when you worship him and you fear him, you will lack nothing. We also see in verse four, that God is a God who judges rightly. So we can go to the nations and we can say this, God is a righteous judge. He is righteous in everything that he does. And all the oppressed, every wrong in this world will be made right with by God. And that's a message that you can take to any corner of the earth. God is righteous. He is just He is worthy to be worshipped. Won't you just imagine with me for a second? What's it going to be like one day to hear the nations sing for joy? Scott Tanner, you guys probably heard a little bit of that in India, right? You're going and worshiping with Sudhakar, and you're hearing them sing. You don't know the words, but you're hearing the joy overflowing. Multiply that times 9,000 plus people groups standing before the throne saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to be, to be glory and honor and might. Yes. That day will come. So, before we move on to our second truth, I want you to look at our mission statement. I know we talk a lot about our three core values, gospel, community, and mission, but you know what you cannot do. There are two words on there that you cannot miss. Redemption Hill Church exists to glorify God. That is supreme. Our church is not primarily about the mission of God. It is ultimately and primarily for the glory of God. So no, we talk about all these core values and we talk about mission, but worship is supreme. And so if you don't get anything, get this. God desires that you would be satisfied with him and respond to him and worship him with your entire being. Well, let me share a second truth with you that'll wrap up our time. Worship is not only the goal of missions, worship is the fuel of missions. What do I mean when I say worship is the fuel of missions? I want you to think about your car for a second. If you have no fuel in your car, is that a problem? If you had no fuel, you probably wouldn't be sitting here this morning unless you walked or you called a friend, you hopped on the bus or the T. You see, you put fuel in your car because you have a destination. When I get in my car, I'm gonna drive home this afternoon. I have a destination, I have a goal. The fuel helps me to reach that goal. So when I say that worship is the fuel of missions, we want to see the nations worship God, and the fuel that's going to see that happen is worship. So what we see here is that worship is not only the goal, it is also the fuel. So let me give you another quote here by Piper as he's fleshing this out, and he says this, but worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends with worship. Do you get it? If you cannot today say, I rejoice in the Lord, you will not spend your life among the unreached 4,000 people groups saying, delight yourself in the Lord. 
So if Redemption Hill Church is going to become a church that sees the mission of God taken to the ends of the earth, we must be a church that truly finds delight and satisfaction in this great God. If you look at your life and you see that your passion for mission is weak, it may reveal that your passion for God is weak. If you're not stunned by the greatness of God, how could you go to the nations and say, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable? You cannot. Andrew Murray contemplating the downfall of missions, says this. As we seek to find out why with such millions of Christians, the real army of God that is fighting the host of darkness is so small, the only answer is lack of heart. The enthusiasm of the kingdom is missing, and that is because there is so little enthusiasm for the king. Look at America. Look at the resources of the church in America and ask this question. If this is the goal of God, if this is the goal of all of creation and the goal of the world, that the earth would be filled with worshipers, why is mission not being propelled? He says there's little enthusiasm for the king. Let me introduce you to a guy named William Carey. You hear us talk about William Carey a lot at Redemption Hill Church. William Carey is the father of modern missions, 1792. I mean, God used him greatly in India. He saw the, the Bible translated into numerous languages there. You hear us say often, expect, get great things from God, attempt great things for God. That's William Carey. He says this, shortly before his death, he tells a friend, he said, you've been saying much about Dr. Carey and his work. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak of Dr. Carey's Savior. If you don't fall in love with Jesus Christ, you will not spend your life for the sake of his name among the nations. If you don't respond to the work of God in the gospel with your whole being, you will never take his name to the ends of the earth. Do you know why worship is the fuel of missions? Because here's what worship does. When you respond with your whole being, you take your eyes off of yourself and you put them on God. But you know what the number one hindrance to mission is? It's yourself. Hey, let's be honest. I love myself. I love my car. I love my house. I love my comforts. I love my money. I love my kids. Can you pray over your kids? God, send them. Use them for your namesake among the nations. What's going to hinder your prayer? You love them more than you love God. You see, false worship and all of these idols in your life are keeping you from the greatest thing in the world. It's being a part of the mission of God to see the nations worship him. It is only when your life is a living sacrifice that the mission of God will be fulfilled in the church. I want to wrap up. This is the point. I'm going to wrap up. The whole, whole point of this sermon is this. Worship God and spend your life inviting the nations to worship God. It's simple. Worship God and spend your life inviting the nations to worship God. In the last few minutes, I'm going to address three objections and then we're going to close. As we start talking about mission, I know that some of you are sitting there and you're thinking this. Isn't it arrogant to claim that everyone should worship my God? I want you to get this. In Psalm 67, the psalmist isn't saying, may they truly and sincerely worship their gods. That is not what the psalmist is saying. 
The psalmist is saying, may God be gracious to us, bless us, make his face to shine upon us. And he concludes, God bless us, let all the ends of the earth not fear their gods, but fear him. Is it arrogant that we claim that everyone should worship my God? I'm going to say no. And I don't have a ton of time here. I'd point you to a chapter in Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. But he says this, and I'm going to just share it briefly. He says, it is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all are equal, is right. Do y'all follow my argument there? We say there's one way, and it's Jesus, and somebody else says, no, the one way is that there are many ways. He says this, we are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. So for the person who says, isn't it arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way or that everyone should worship your God, there in that are faith assumptions. That they're assuming that there are many ways. They're assuming that God is not a wrathful God, that he's only loving. Or they're assuming that God is not knowable. Second, what happens to people who never hear the gospel? This is a tough question, right? You've, you've probably, in youth groups, sat around, well, what about the person and so-and-so never hears the gospel? What happens to them? Now, I'm just gonna be honest with you. Most people, if we were to have a conversation, probably say, you know what? It wouldn't be fair if they've never heard to be kept out of heaven. But so, man, if they've never heard, how would it be fair? I, wanna, I want you to think about two things. One, does anybody deserve to be in heaven? Do any of you deserve? None of us. So I'm gonna, usually that question is framed the wrong way. Hey, it's not fair that, is it fair that God should allow any person into heaven? No. We are all sinners deserving the wrath and condemnation of God. What is just is that he should have condemned us all to hell. But let me share a second point with you. Nothing will kill global missions more than the thought that if somebody never hears, somehow they'll get into heaven. Let me just reason with you. If it is true that the person who never hears will get into heaven, well, then what is the best thing for you and I to do? Keep your mouth shut. Because as soon as I tell them about Jesus, what have I done? They're now accountable. So if, if they're going to get into heaven, if they don't hear, no, don't take the gospel to the nations because the nations will be into heaven. But that is not what we see in the scriptures. We see the continual plea to take the gospel to the nations. Paul in Romans 10, he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then in verse 14, he says this, but how can they call on him of whom they've never believed? And how can they believe if they never hear? And how can they hear if no one is, no one preaches? And how can they preach unless someone is sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So I don't know how you've wrestled with that question, but I want you to know this. If that is your belief, it is wrong and it will kill missions. The heartbeat of our missions is that only if they hear this good news will they be saved. Final question. What about all the needs here in Boston? This and we're done. Man, there's so much work to be done in Boston. I mean, we're in one of the most unreached places in the U.S. Why spend this budget, these dollars, this, this time, this effort on the nations when look at all of this work that's got to be done here in Boston? Now, usually those who say this is just a smokescreen. People who say, I mean, look at all this, they're really not really trying to engage Boston for the sake of the gospel. But let's say they are. Let's say they're really after it. It would still miss the heart of God. David Platt says this. So when we say we have a heart for the United States, we're admitting that we have a meager 5% of God's heart. And we are proud of it. When we say we have a heart for the city we live in, we confess that we have less than 1% percent of God's heart. 
In view of that, John Stott says this, we must be global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. Regardless of where you live, I'm not, the point of my sermon isn't that everybody should pack up right now and go to the nations. But I do want you to do this, regardless of where you live, here or overseas, everybody should be pursuing 100% of the heart of God for the nations. So here's what I want us to do. This is the first sermon in our series. The good news is that I don't expect everybody to respond to the call of missions today. We've got three more chances at it. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Starting today, will you begin to pray Psalm 67 for Redemption Hill Church and for your life? I don't have all the answers for you, and you may not know the answers, but we just start praying. What would it look like if we started praying Psalm 67? I'm going to read it one more time. In view of the fulfillment that we have found in Christ, what would it look like if we started praying this for our church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you be gracious to us and bless us? Would you make your face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations? God, would you bless Redemption Hill Church so that we may be a blessing to the nations? God, would you bless John Chastain so that you may use my life for the sake of your name among the nations. Lord, let all the peoples praise you, O oh God. Let all the peoples praise you. God, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. You judge the peoples with equity. equity. You guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O oh God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, would you bless us? God, would you bless us? Let all the ends of the earth fear you. God, have your way in our church. Spend us, use us for your namesake until all peoples praise you. Amen.